0: and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God Abides forever. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the word given and proclaimed boldly this morning. Thank you for our collective offering of praise and thanksgiving for your love poured out over us. We submit ourselves and position ourselves to receive your truth. And we ask, Holy Spirit, for you to stir up the things in our hearts and minds that need correction, training, and righteousness. We pray that your love would come and abide with us and dwell richly in us, and we pray that um, you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Looks like everyone adjusted to the time change. It's good to see you. You got an extra hour of rest last night, so you should be super energized this morning. Some of us, I saw some with uh, newborn babies going, I don't know that I got an extra hour last night, but uh, we're thankful you're here. Uh, A few announcements as we get going this morning. Uh, Just wanna remind you uh, about immeasurably more, and you're gonna continue to hear about this uh, because we as a church believe and are asking and are dreaming that we serve a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And uh, because of that, uh, we want to make bold requests and attempt bold things for God. And so that's our, our desire. That's kind of our uh, initiative right now. And I, the, the question I would ask us is, how would we view our financial resources if God can do immeasurably more? And so for some of us, uh, we've been giving towards that. And we're praying, and we're going to give you an opportunity in the, even in the coming weeks to really, we want to see 100% participation that every single one of us would would give towards seeing God do immeasurably more, that we would take our resources and go, God, you can do immeasurably more with this. And, uh, and, and we're, we're seeking to use that. We're, we're seeking to raise uh, $75,000 in addition to our just regular operating budget to go towards finishing out the build-out of our building and participating in the work that God's doing there, as well as participating in future church plants. I'm gonna be sharing with you next Sunday, a brief video of a church that we've been able to support and and help resource uh, through our immeasurably more giving. And so uh, I wanna do that and share that and uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, I wanna tell you that we are still on pace. Um, I am making sure that we are staying on pace. Uh, in our building build out. And uh, if I were to give you a date today uh, just to prepare you because when it happens, it happens. Uh, I'm going to throw out the date of December 12th. Let's worship there December 12th. How about it? All right. Some of you who are freezing cold right now are like, yes, how about it, all right? Uh, You're shivering a little bit. It's kind of like a refrigerator in here. And uh, we do that because when you walk in and it's warm, you don't actually look at the walls that are unpainted on December 12th, right? Maybe not. Either way, um, December 12th, uh, that's kind of the goal. And so we'll keep you up to speed on uh, how that's unfolding. Uh, we We are super close. Um, I will say that uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to begin transitioning uh, some of our equipment to the new space. And so uh, this Sunday, just to kind of get word out, this Sunday will actually be our final Sunday of live service being broadcasted. Uh, we will continue to post the sermon audio and uh, from our gathering after, uh, after the service, uh, but we're going to be transitioning that equipment, and then uh, sometime in the near future, we'll bring those, those videos back. Um, After the service this morning, joining the family lunch, we had 25, 30 people go through that last time. Uh, We have 25 people who are joining the Ecclesia family that are coming today. We're excited to host. There's one more uh, this fall. If you haven't signed up, we'd encourage you to do so. Um, We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning, and we come to a very interesting part of this letter where John pauses for a brief moment if if you've kind of just kind of pick up the book of first john and you just begin reading you're going to come to first john chapter 2 verse 12 and you're going to be like well that's kind of odd it's kind of just a a weird pause a weird break in in kind of the the flow of thought that's been happening and occurring. And so we don't always see that because if you're here, maybe you you were like, hey, I'm I'm an every other weaker kind of person, so I wasn't here last week, but I was here the week before and I didn't come the week before that. And you're like, it's kind of like A and B Sunday. I'm going to attend on A Sundays and that's twice a month. And you didn't get to capture like the flow of where we've been going. But what I want you to see in the text this morning is kind of this weird break, pause, where he's like, hey, I know I've given out a lot of commands. I know that I've been very clear, like last Sunday, where it's like, hey, guys, little children, do not sin. And you're like, okay, like it's pretty black and white. And then he just pauses, and he speaks all this identity language in 12 through 14, and then he's going to kick back into the commands, love not the world. And it, it, what John is really doing here, and, and really what I want to capture is, is that John is changing the tone of his voice. There's some, there's some different direction. There's a different posture. And, and he's wanting to say, hey, are we still together? Are, are we still friends? I, I have to ask that because as over the last few weeks, Some people are like, man, you've been bringing the fire. And I was like, hey, I really wrestle with it because I know that there's some people in the crowd that feel afflicted. There's some people in our congregation that feel afflicted and and they need comfort. And there's some people who are really comfortable that need to be afflicted. And I have to wrestle. And here's what I want you to see. That's what John is doing. John is comforting the afflicted And afflicting the comfortable. My role as a pastor at Ecclesia is to comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable, and to make sure that I preach the need for Jesus for both of those groups. So if you're walking in this morning, you're like, dude, I'm I'm just I'm good, you know, like I'm great. My I'm hopefully gonna stir a little something in you, and some of you are coming like, man, I'm not I'm 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 hurting, I'm and I'm like we need to comfort you. And you may not know this, but I have two voices. And you're like, no, no way. I've seen Justin preach. Like he stands up, he beats his fist on the pulpit, tells us to do things. And why don't we bring Greg back up? He's nice. You will. You're going to get him next week. And he's going to be speaking on the Antichrist. And it's not the Antichrist like the one who's opposed Jesus, but all the people who left the church who were opposed to Jesus, denying Jesus, Greg's going to call them antichrist. So everyone who's left Ecclesia in the last five years, he's going to call a man of Christ next week, and, and you're going to see that fire from him. I'm setting him up, right? Here's the thing. As a pastor, when I walk through this text, the context in which we're writing uh, the original authors were writing it's important that that we carry that same tone and posture when i get up i i really have to discover like what was the intended voice of the original author and there are some that's like do not sin And there are people who were of us, and they're no longer with us. And they're the Antichrist because they're denying Jesus. And it's fueled with fire. And then John comes, like I did last week, and is like, hey, these are my boys. This is my family. These are my children. This is my church. And I just want to sure you up in the things that are true about you. I'm writing to you to encourage you. I'm writing to you to bring you this great word about your identity in Christ. I'm writing to you, and it's, it's important as a preacher and teacher that we understand the intended voice the author's trying to proclaim. Now, if you've journeyed with me, you know I'm a pretty charismatic guy when I preach, and I love to to yell, and, and I get excited a little bit, and there's an intensity, and I think sometimes the, the text brings that, but this morning is a, is a time where hopefully I can really reveal my heart. Now, I know there's some of you who are here that are like totally stoked because we've been walking through 1 John verse by verse, and we're going to geek out over this Greek word, and this morning's not one of those mornings. Because I, re- I really want to communicate my heart, so my I'm intentionally trying to stay out of my notes, so that I can engage emotionally with you this morning. Because that's what the author is attempting to do. John's a pastor. John's a pastor, just trying to communicate his heart to a people that he loves. If you look back in uh, in my life. And uh, if I were to kind of give you a brief history, I remember I came to know the Lord when I was 18 years old. Shortly after, I, I began in ministry. And uh, you guys may not know this, but like I actually began in ministry. I led worship. And uh, so I led a college ministry uh, for several years. Uh, I transitioned college, went to Missouri, led worship for all of our chapel services. It was a Christian college, Bible college. And, and really, like, that was kind of my journey. And then I was invited to teach. I was invited to, uh, to go out into, like, the sticks of Missouri and preach a revival. Like, preaching on the flatbed trailer in a city where it was, like, population 33, all right? Very few people. Good thing I got invited. I went, I studied for months, I took 20 pages of notes into the pulpit, and I preached a full seven and a half minutes, And you're like, that's it? And I was like, yeah, that's all I had. Like, I, I rattled through the notes so fast. I'm like, that's all I had to say. I gave everything I had. And in many ways, I didn't really have my own voice. I had a lot of people that I imitated. I saw a lot of pastors that I'm like, man, I I love what he has to say. I love the way in which he teaches. And and I want to be like that person. And so a lot of learning is imitating, right? Like we we follow people. We look to people. We have mentors. And we're like, I want to be like them. But I was honestly like regularly challenged on trying to discover my own voice in teaching. I remember... uh, about a year and a half ago, I read a book called Four Views on Preaching, and I read those, and I'm like, I think I agree with all four views. And I see, like, different aspects of my teaching in which, like, I'm probably more in line with each one of those views. And then I was like, man, I'm really kind of clueless doing this. I've, although I've gone to seminary, although I've been trained to to to, like, be able to open God's word and, and teach what, what is originally written in the Hebrew and Greek. I, I, didn't, I never took a preaching class. I never took a, a formal way of like standing up and communicating. So I had a way in which that I communicated, but I didn't know if it was the right way. And is there a right way? Or is there just your way? And that way works, you know? And it, a lot of discovery. So I hired a preaching coach. And some of you are like, yeah, you must not pay him very much. No, hopefully... Hopefully, as you've been journeying with us in the last year, like, I, I've been working on things with a preaching coach. Why? Because I'm trying to discover my voice in teaching. And I, and I, want, I want them to, to help. I want them to listen in. And so there's nothing more humiliating than having someone who is trained in this listen to your sermon and give feedback and be like, yeah, you shouldn't have said that. I'm like, good word. All right, thank you. And and, and really just like speaking Wisdom and, and truth, and, and giving direction. And so, over the years, I, I've been seeking to really discover my voice. And I love, if you know of Eugene Peterson, who uh, was the author and translator of the Message Bible. People used to say, like, Eugene, although he would preach numerous different texts, he had, he, he had one sermon. You know, there was, a, there was a bent to every single sermon that he preached. And, and I think, like, what is, what is my one sermon? If, if you were to come week after week, what's the one thing you leave and you, you hear? And, and I hope, you know, I, I think when I look back on my, my life and I go, what do what I want people walking out the door? It's that they're walking out the door going, it's all about Jesus. That our eyes are full of Jesus. That we see Jesus. You may not know this as I maybe get up and and teach on on Sundays that's more fiery in nature, but the reason I preach with fire and the reason I I teach with such passion is because there is a deep love and affection for each of you. When I look across the room and I think about each of you, and I haven't sat across the table from each of you, and that would be difficult to do with most of you, But I would ask you, do you know my heart for you? Do you know the passion I have for you to see you grow and mature in the faith? I think often when we face critique as pastors, as elders, and leaders in the church, and we do, some of it's necessary and needed, some of it's very much unnecessary. I I literally just go like, man, I'm just trying to help people. I'm just trying to fill people's eyes with Jesus. I'm just trying to see people grow into maturity in the faith. That's the goal. That's what we're doing here. That's why we're here. That's what I I seek to do as a pastor. That's why I went to school. That's why I've been trained. That's why I have, like, I do this. Because I, I love you as the church, as the ecclesia, I pray for you regularly. I wake up thinking about you. Our elders wake up thinking about you. Our elders pray for you. Our elders consider you. Our elders are considering how best to help you grow and mature. There's a heart affection, a passionate connection, a relationship with you. And as I read the book of John, three things surface in my role and responsibility as a pastor. And I want to share those. In fact, to kind of give you a direction of where we're going, and I told you it's not going to be like, word for word, let's walk through this text together because I think it's, it's a unique enough passage of where he just kind of pauses, and I kind of want to just tell you more of like why he's doing what he's doing rather than what he says, but I am gonna to get to what he says. I want to give you this morning three things I've learned as a pastor from First John, three things I've learned about assurance in our faith from First John, and three things I've learned about identity from 1 John, okay? Three things I've learned as, as a pastor. I told you earlier, I feel like, you know, in some ways we have a, a voice to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and to teach the need for Jesus for both. The thing that I uh, was encouraged with as I read this passage is John is not just a list of rules. He's not just given us a list of rules. And here's why. First thing, rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Some of us grew up in homes where our parents parented us in a way that it was all rules. Just rules, solid rules. Just like, do this, don't do that. And there was no relationship, there was no engagement, there was no interaction, there was no connection. And there's some of us that if, if, quite honest, if we were to talk, how's your relationship with Justin or Greg or one of the elders? And maybe it seems distant. And so maybe you hear us this morning, and the relationship you have with us is lacking, and because of that, all you hear is rules, 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 do this, don't do this. And ultimately what that leads to is rebellion. We've all seen that 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 kid, or maybe you've been that kid. That you grew up in the home, it was all rules, you go away to college and it's all about there are no rules. Right? It leads to rebellion. And I think what we see in this passage is that John is not just all rules. We see this fatherly affection, we see this connection, we see this relationship with the people. He has an affection for them. He's with them. And we long to do that. I want you to know like our heart, there's not a person in this room that I would not meet with. If you called me and said, hey, we would love to connect, I'd love to connect with you. But in quiet, just to be really honest, if it were to be this sense of going like, hey, if I were to kind of make my way around and meet with each of you individually throughout the year, I would only see you maybe once a year. And I think we're, we're needing more depth of relationship. I remember when I was going through church planning residency, and they said, how do people get to know the real Justin? That was the question. And to be quite honest, it's time spent. Some people meet me and they're afraid of me. And I'm telling you, like, if we were to sit down and share a meal together or come to one another's home, hopefully some of those walls would be able to be broken down. I'm quite a lovable guy, guys. <laughs> the truth is, we need both. Rules without relationship equals rebellion, relationship without rules leads to resentment. If it's all just relationship, it's all about just affection. If all we're doing is like, hey, we're just being with one another. There's, it's not a high challenge environment. We don't need to bring any, you know, like commands, any rules. Let's just be friends. And the reality is, is that over time that leads to resentment because if in a parenting relationship, rules without relationship, if I grew up in a home much like I did, where my parents loved me, they cared for me, but they weren't really high on the the rules side of things. And I look back and I go, you know what? I missed out on a lot of training. There's a lot of things that I feel like I would have benefited as a child if there would have been some direction or correction or appropriate discipline in my life. And I would say my mom tried to discipline my dad tried to discipline. I would have none of that, right? But the reality is, is that rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Relationship without rules leads to resentment. And we ultimately go like, I wish they would have challenged me more. There are people that come and they sit within a church and there's people that walk out the doors and go, you know what, I felt good and it was super encouraging, super lighthearted, but I really wasn't challenged. We need both. So here's what I would say. Relationship with rules leads to resilient disciples. Relationship with rules leads to resilient disciples. We need both. Resilient, meaning you continue in your faith. I remember literally six months before we moved here, I've shared this story with some. uh, A dad brought me uh, to his office. I was a student pastor. It was on New Year's Eve, 2013, New Year's Eve, almost 2014. A dad called me to his office and said, hey, can we meet around 5.30 this evening? And I said, yeah, sure. So I came, I drove up to his office, I came in, and he brought me back to to his office, and he sat down, and he began to ridicule me for an hour on New Year's Eve. And honestly, there was a sense in me that they got really fiery and upset and, and was kind of like, are you, like, and he was making remarks. I was like, are you trying to fight me? Like, are you trying to, what's going on? And what this dad began to communicate to me was the fact that his daughter was 18 years old. She'd been in our student ministry since she was in junior high. And she's walking out the door as an 18-year-old, about to graduate in six months. And she doesn't have a heart and passion and fire for Jesus. And he looks across the table at me and he says, and Justin, it's your fault. Now, quite honestly, in the moment, I couldn't see through like, the fire to understand his pain. But years later, I would discover that here is a dad who is all about relationship, who never discipled his daughter, who never modeled in the home what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And as an 18-year-old, she's walking out the door, not as a resilient disciple, but someone who's walking away from the faith, And that dad needs someone to blame. That dad needs someone to look to and say, you know, it's not my fault. And so I'm gonna put it on the student pastor. It's his fault. And I really did, I looked at him, I said, you know what? Like, I see your daughter two hours a week. She lives in your home all week, seven days a week. You have a responsibility, rules and relationship. We see that to neglect one really leads to immaturity. It's important that as a pastor, and I, and I think that I, I feel like I need to grow in a sense of that shepherding pastoral side of going, what does it look like to be rules and relationship with the church at Ecclesia that God has given us, with the people of Ecclesia? How do I pastor in a way that John has modeled that resembles both? That he's called us to hard things, that he's called us to not sin, that he's called us to not love the world, that he's called us to, to, to be obedient to the commands. But he also wants to make sure to comfort the afflicted. And I think that's three things that I've learned as a pastor. But I think there's three things we learn about assurance. There's a reason why John is going to write 12 through 14. He says over and over again, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing. There is a reason why he's writing. Why? Why? To help them, to encourage them, to spur them on, to motivate them, to change them, to keep them in the fight, to help them be obedient to the commands of God. He's writing with an intended purpose. And it tells us in 1 John 5 13 through 15, he says, I write to you these things who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. There's an assurance. And that assurance changes us. And what John is doing in 12 through 14, he's like, I want you to have the assurance of these things. I've asked you to do a lot of things. I've shared the commands of Scripture with you, but there's some things I need to let you know. I want you to know that these things are true. Here's why he does that. One, assurance increases devotion. Assurance increases devotion. You've heard me say, you will never passionately live for something you are not sure that you have. You won't. You'll never passionately live for something you're not sure that you have. If you're guessing, you're assuming, you're wondering, you're questioning, you're doubting, it's not to say that those things are wrong. It's just to say that that John is writing to assure us, to shore things up so that we can have that assurance because he knows that if you're assured that you will be devoted. I remember right after college, I got a job at a church that was like a dream job. Stepping onto this campus, it was a 24,000 member church. Like to think that they gave me and entrusted me with a key to that building. I was like, what in the world? This is amazing. But I wouldn't let myself get excited because I'm like, maybe I heard them wrong. Maybe I didn't really get the job. And it was like, when, are, when would I have the assurance? And my friends who already worked there on, on staff at the church, they were like, dude, you went through the interview. Like, they totally said you were hired. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't want to get my hopes up. You know, I kind of want to just protect my heart. And, uh, you know, so just want to want to be careful here. And, It's like, well, when are are you gonna be assured? I was like, well, when I get my first paycheck, then I'll know I'm on staff. It just seems too good to be true. And I remember just kind of like, not really moving into my house, not really moving into my office, not really like, you know, just really just kind of staying in a protective state until I got that first check. And then I was like, oh, I'm on staff here. This is good news like yeah you've been on staff for a month right you know and but there was just that assurance like they actually paid me so so I know that I'm a, I'm a part of the team there was that that assurance and I think about like relationships and you've done this you know maybe, maybe we won't be honest and share but we've all been in like relationships and we've done the same thing right like we're not really sure how he or she feels about me, and so I'm, what I'm going to do? I'm going to protect my heart. So I'm going to protect my heart in a certain way, and like I'm, I'm not going to fully give myself to another, but, you know, because I, you know I don't know how they feel, but once you, once you have that assurance and that confidence, and that's one of the things that like, marriage brings, is obviously it brings us into this sense of relationship of going, hey, this is a covenant. We're together. We're doing this. And that assurance leads to devotion. I'm not going anywhere, I'm with you in this. And, that, and that's one of the things that, that John is writing. He's writing to give them that assurance so that our devotion to the Lord would grow that it would increase. But he's writing that there's, there's not a number of sins that you can commit that God's no longer going to be devoted to you. He is devoted. I've written these things to you right out of the gates. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. Well, that's a good thing. And I, and I thought, I'm like, I could spend the whole morning just talking about the fact that your sins are forgiven. We could. But again, the Bible, while some of us love to geek out on all the different words, like many times the original way the Bible was taught, it was read as a letter over a crowd of people. They didn't get to like divulge on every nuance of how the word was used in a particular tense form. And it's it's like it was just spoken and there was an immediate response. And I just wonder this morning, what type of assurance it would bring To hear a pastor look at you and say your name and say, Pam, your sins are forgiven. Luke, your sins are forgiven. Shauna, your sins are forgiven. Josh, your sins are forgiven. Becca, your sins are forgiven. There's an assurance. And I want you to hear that word over you this morning, the love of a pastor speaking and just coming to you and sitting across the table. This isn't just meant to be this generic letter thrown over a group of people, but a people he loved that he was affectionate towards and just going, I want you to know, you don't have to guess, you don't have to doubt, you don't have to wonder, you don't have to question. Your sins are forgiven. That's good news. That's enough to keep us going. Assurance reduces vulnerability. There's a sense in which giving that that sense of assurance that your sins are forgiven, if I just use that one as an example, it's going to keep you from being vulnerable to attacks. What do I mean about that? You have an enemy, I have an enemy. We have an enemy who's a roaring lion, seeking to devour us, seeking to take us out. If there's anything that he's committed to, he's committed to keep you from following Jesus and being devoted to Jesus and living for Jesus and being bold for Jesus. He's committed to keep you stagnant, complacent, and not running after Jesus. He's out to do that. And one way that he loves to do that because I think about the three identity statements that are given here and I go the enemy loves to speak the very opposite. The the three identity, let me give you those. I'm giving them out of order here. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father and you've overcome the evil one. You know what the enemy loves to tell you? You're not you're still in your sins. You're a failure. You're worthless. You're a sinner. You don't know the Father, and He doesn't know you. And He doesn't care about you. He's distant from you. He's removed from you. You don't know the Father. And you can't beat me. I'm stronger than you are. He loves to tell you that. But the assurance that John is giving, he's giving you that because it reduces the vulnerability. If you know those things to be true, then you're more willing to pick up your gun and be ready to fight. Like you're not laying down in the the war. When you know that your sins are forgiven, when you know that you know the Father, when you know that you can overcome the evil one, you're like, well, then I'm going to stand my ground. He can't take me. There's a sense of, 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 of being able to boast in the power of Jesus. But the thing is, is, Assurance increases our boldness, right? Because it doesn't just have a stand, but it actually goes, we can actually take ground. There are many of us who walk in the room who go, I could never lead anything, I can never serve, because you don't know the truth and reality about me. And I'm saying, I do know the truth and reality about you. If you're in Christ, hear this. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. You know Him who is from the beginning. And you have overcome the evil one. Not that you will overcome, you will overcome, you already have, you already beat Him. There's a boldness in knowing when you face an enemy that you know that you're gonna win. And it's not just like boasting pride, It's like, the the truth is, you will win. You will win. Assurance increases devotion. Assurance reduces vulnerability. And assurance increases boldness. Now, what is he writing? Let's get in. And you're like, what have we been doing? We're going to get into the text a little more. Here we go. What is he specifically writing in this portion? First thing, your identity is not based upon your maturity. I can tell you right now, if you go and you pull up every commentary you can fa- like find in fashion on this text, everyone is going to ask, why in the world does he use little children, children, fathers, and young men? And the answer is, no one knows. No one knows. The, well, was he speaking to little children and children and Young men and fathers? Yeah, probably. They were a part of the congregation? Was he meaning those to be a sense of like generic term that, that spoke to the body of Christ? Yeah, quite possibly. And so this morning I'm left to speculate, right? We wonder why we're given these different aspects or stages of life. Little children, which he has already used in previous text. He uses children because he repeats these statements twice. Young men and fathers. And to me, when I look at it, I think of in our spiritual journey as believers in Jesus, Our age does not always equate to our maturity. We could be 65 years old and be very immature in Christ, and we could be eight years old and be maturing and mature in our faith as an eight-year-old. There are some who I know that have followed Jesus for 30-plus, 40-plus, 50-plus years. still lack maturity. And here's what I would say that I know to be true, because when you read this text, he states, sins are forgiven, you know him as from the beginning, you've overcome the evil one, and he ties it to one of those groups. But when he goes into the next section, those are mismatched. And I think it's interesting, when you look down, it goes... I write to you children now because you know the Father. But he's the, he just said that, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. It's the same thing. And here's what I would say, your identity is not based upon your maturity. You may be young in the faith, your sins are still forgiven. You may be young in the faith, and you still know the Father. It doesn't mean we can't grow in that. You may be young in the faith, but you still have the power to overcome the evil one. When I read this text, I see these are different phases, but these identity statements are true of all ages. So what's true about you? Not a future version of you, and I think that's important. If I do this, then my sins will be forgiven. If I do this, then I'll truly know the Father. If I do this, then I can truly overcome the evil one. No. If you were to put your faith and trust in Jesus today, your sins would be forgiven. You would know the Father, and you could overcome the evil one. It's true. Two. What you believe about your identity shapes your behavior. What you believe about your identity shapes your behavior. I cannot tell you how much identity language is spoken in God's word. So much of 1 John is do this, don't do this. But he keeps coming back to these brief sections of here's who you are. Here's what is true. And the reason why is I believe that we'll be less tempted to be swayed or pulled from a relationship that I know is secure, that I know that my identity is secure. The reason many of us fall into sin is because we're looking for something in something other than God. So what's true about me and my relationship with God? And can I tell you that since the beginning of time, the enemy was out to steal, steal, there it is, that's the less Texas version, steal, still Texan, that identity away from you and get you to question God. If you go back and you look in Genesis 3, the first sight of the enemy coming on scene with Adam and Eve... The serpent looks at Eve and says, did God really say? Can I tell you that for many of you, it may not not be as crystal clear as the enemy coming to you and saying, hey, did God really say that you are forgiven? Did God really say you can overcome the evil one? Did God really say that you know him and he knows you? And begins to put questions of doubt. The reason the biblical authors so often, so frequently turn us back to identity is because our identity shapes what we do. What we believe to be true about us changes our behavior. You've heard us teach before on the four great truths about God God is good. Gracious, glorious, and great. All sinful areas of our life are failing to believe one of those truths about God. God is good, great, glorious, and gracious. And what, if I were to look at this text, I'm going, this is John telling us that God is good, gracious, glorious, and great. Why? He's good. He's, he's given you full relationship with him. You know him. You're known by him. He's gracious. Your sins are forgiven. You don't have to look for acceptance elsewhere. You are fully accepted for his namesake, Jesus. As we st- stated last week, Jesus stands as your advocate before the throne of God. We see that, that he's great, that he has the power. The power resides inside of us with the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the evil one. This identity language, it changes our behavior. We need to know these truths. And it tells us in this passage the very last verse in 14, I write to you young men because you are strong. How are they strong? Because the word of God abides in them. The word of God defines our identity. That's point number three. The reason we give rules of like, read God's word and be in God's word and saturate your life with God's word and allow God's word to just pour over you is because God's Word is a complete reminder of what is true. The enemy is out to get us to question, did God really say? And we have to turn back to what God said. And so God's Word shapes us and forms us in our identity. Identity. I close with this. John moves from this section of why he's writing back into a command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's interesting in this passage is we read the sense of being like known by the Father, this identity language of we're forgiven, this identity language of we can overcome the evil one. And then it goes into this this passage about love of the world and love of the Father. And what's the connection? And I think if I could give you the connection, I would say this. Love for the world is diminished by love for the Father. Love for the world is diminished by love for the Father. The way our love for the world decreases is our love for the Father increases. When we see that it is God the Father who knows us, when we see that it is God the Father who has accepted us and forgiven us, when we see that it is God the Father who has come and empowered us to overcome the evil one, and when we fully devote and give our life to Him, Love for the world is diminished. So the reality is, we are presented with two choices today, church love the world, love the Father. The world passes away, but the one who obey God, obeys God remains forever. Two choices. Remember where your identity comes from. Remember who it is who has called you forgiven. Remember the instruction of John that says you know the Father and give your life wholeheartedly to serve Him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and I'm going to, Ask you guys to just kind of close your eyes for a moment as just a way of response. I just want to have you process. When you think back over your last week, have you been working for an identity? Have you been trying, has the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride and possessions ruled your life in the sense of how you define, like, if I get this, then I'll truly be successful. John writes us as a pastor, coming to say that there's nothing else that you need to achieve. There's nothing else that you need to to do All you need to do is receive the identity that he's already given you. Listen to these words, church, over you, over you this morning. Ecclesia, the church, you are forgiven for his name's sake. Ecclesia, church, you know him who is from the beginning. Ecclesia Church, you have the power to overcome the evil one. This is who you are this morning. This is what is true. The world will tell you differently. The enemy will cause you to question it and doubt it. But may you come back to the truth of Scripture and say, I'm forgiven. I know the Father. And I can overcome anything the enemy throws at me. Father, I pray for our church this morning. I'm thankful for this encouraging word you have positioned right here in this letter of 1 John. Thank you no matter where we are in our spiritual journey that these things can be true of us. That we can be little children this morning and know that our sins can be forgiven. What good news, what what a great gift that is. That we can be fathers this morning. We can be older. And that our history of walking with you has just deepened our knowledge of you. We may be young men and women this morning. But we're going to walk out of this room knowing that we are empowered and have the power to overcome the evil one. Thank you for these words. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. And if there's anything, and when I think of the pastoral affection I have for you this morning, it's I want you to have assurance. Charles Spurgeon is quoted saying, He was so sure of his salvation that he could grab onto a corn stalk and swing out over the fires of hell, look into the face of the devil and sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's the type of assurance that you're being sent out into the world with this morning. That's the type of assurance that we're gonna stand and sing with this morning. And that's the type of assurance that if you're not sure, we want to pray for you. Over in the back corner, Levi, raise your hand. I can see you. Yes, there are people who would love to pray for you. No matter what it is, big or small, we want to encourage you. If you're in a place where you just feel beat up, you feel afflicted this morning, we want to comfort you. We want to walk with you. We want to pray for you. We want to... Speak the good news of God's word of what is true over you give them the opportunity to do that this morning if you're here this morning and you say you know what there's a lot of the love of the world in me and I want to grow in my love for the Father they'd love to pray for you they would love to be able to look at you as you reach out and you cling to Jesus to be able to look at you and say Hey, brother, hey, sister, your sins are forgiven this morning. Did you know that you can have the greatest gift ever this morning? Forgiveness of sins. There's nothing that compares to it. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? He's in control. He's the boss of my life. He's the head coach. He calls the shots. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God truly raised him from the grave, that he is alive and living, the Bible says, the reality, the truth of the Bible, you will be saved. There's nothing more than we would look upon you and say, this morning, you're saved. You can have that assurance. We'd love to pray for you. If there's any need at all, give us the opportunity to walk alongside you in relationship with you. We love you, church. We want to encourage you. We want to support you. We want to keep pushing one another to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Man, Let's stand and sing.